You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Believe it or not, we are coming to the end of our The Fruit of the Spirit series. And today we are talking about the last fruit, which is self-control. I have to warn you, though, self-control has a bite to it. I um, skimmed over an, an article by Christianity Today from last year, and the title of the article was Sexual Harassment Went Unchecked at Christianity Today. And it writes about how two department heads at Christianity Today over the course of 12 years had dozens of sexual harassment complaints from female coworkers. And nothing was done by the human resources and nothing was done by the executives when it was brought to their attention. <clears throat> There's some tragic irony here for an article like this to come out about Christianity today. If you are familiar with uh, what that is, it's a Christian magazine founded by, believe it or not, Billy Graham in the 1950s. And some of you are familiar with Billy Graham's sexual ethic, pretty, pretty high standards. Now, in the recent years, Christianity Today has been notorious for exposing similar stories for other Christian leaders. They, they have reported on leaders such as Bill Hybels on Willow Creek, Carl Lenz from Hillsong Church, New York, Ravi Zacharias. Also, Christianity Today is the organization that put out the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church podcast that charted to be the top three podcasts of all genres of podcasts, which records the, the power abuses of Pastor Mark Driscoll. And, and I know that <clears throat> these are real situations that deal with real people who have been hurt. And this is a tragedy. Uh, but it's stories like these that cause people outside of the church to look at Christianity and instead of using words like the fruit of the spirit to describe Christians, one of the top adjectives that people use for Christians is hypocrites. Hypocrites. When you have one of the, one of the top magazines who is notorious for exposing those kinds of behaviors elsewhere, they are letting the same behaviors slide for more than a decade within their own organization. Now, and we, you know, we have to talk about these kind of things. I certainly uh, need to talk about this stuff as a church leader. So I, I wanna pose a question to you. <clears throat> what do all of these situations have in common? All the stories that I, that, I, that I shared with you earlier. The answer is this. I would say that each one of those leaders lacked self-control. <clears throat> as, you, as you might know, it is, it is possible to go to church and not grow in the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible to be known as a Christian by name, but to not actually follow Jesus in your life. It's possible even to serve in ministry or to work at a Christian organization like a magazine and even see the speck in other people's eyes while ignoring, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the plank or the log that is sticking out in your own eyes. This is why self-control is such an essential part of our Christian life. And we need self-control. We need to grow in self-control. It's not like, you know, the other fruits of the Spirit are important and this one isn't. No, no. This is a vital fruit to have in our life. It makes the list 
because God knows it is vitally important to us. Now, <clears throat> the Greek word for self-control is enkratia, and, and it means temperance, control, and restraint. Now, this is a combination of two Greek words. First, it's the word en, which means in, and kritas, which means power or strength. You know, especially for those that, that, that go to the gym, you can easily recognize someone who has outer strength, physical strength. They can bench press a lot of weight. They can squat a lot of weight. But in Kretia is this inner strength. And it's specifically referring to having power over yourself, having power over the desires and the cravings in your life. Simply put, self-control is the ability to say no when you want to say yes. It's the ability to say no to a desire, a craving, an appetite that you have. And, and by the way, saying no to yourself is not viewed as a virtue today uh, in, in our society. Would, would everyone agree with me on, 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 on this? Actually saying no to a desire is viewed as a threat. Do you realize that? John Mark uh, Comer, uh, Comer, sorry, John Mark Comer, puts it like this in his, in, in his book, Live No Lies. And I highly recommend this book if you, wanna, if, you want, if you want a good read. And I quote, in this new religion of the self, what our ancestors called chastity is now called oppression if it's eternally opposed or repression if it's internally opposed, end quote. Have you sensed this in our culture? People respond to healthy and godly values and principles with, man, who are you telling me? Who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? There's this uh, popular uh, cultural slogan, you do you. And that perfectly describes this atmosphere in which we live our life in 2023 in the West on planet Earth. That is, that if any kind of faith or religion or the Bible any kind of ex external authority tells you, you can't do this, well, that's ultimately bad for you. If you are around a group of friends or coworkers, and I'm sure that this happened to, to, to some of you many times, and you say, you know, you know what, I'm, I'm actually not going to have that drink. You know what, I just made some decisions in my dating life and I'm not going to sleep with my girlfriend anymore. Someone will probably say, why? Why are you so archaic? Why, why, are you, why are you repressing your natural animalistic behaviors or desires that you have? And yet, at a moment like this, we have to pause and acknowledge a world without self-control. Where do you think a world without self-control would lead us? Where? Well, a life without self-control leads to sexual harassment. A life without self-control leads to rape, it leads to murder and violence, it leads to drunkenness, it leads to lying and stealing and cheating, it leads to broken families and broken, broken churches and broken communities. So I want to ask you this morning, do you really want a world without self-control? <laughs> of course not. But the crazy thing is that the way it's advertised, it's, it's, it's kind of like that's the life that we should, we should want, that's the life that we should pursue a life with the maximum amount of individual freedom, doing everything that you want to do, everything that you desire. And yet a world like that, you know, will not actually lead to a utopia. It's, it, it'll actually lead to something that looks like the movie, The Purge, if you've seen it. And I, I haven't seen that movie. I will never see it and you shouldn't either, but, but I heard of it. It's basically a day without rules and everyone does what they want. 
Now, <laughs> it gets out of hand in a second, very quickly, and destruction and hell is the result. <clears throat> so do you want to be a person that says yes to everything that you want to do? Do you really want to be a person that says yes to everything? I mean, think about the consequences and not the immediate consequences, but the long-term consequences, the consequences that really matter, the consequences of the brokenness and destruction that you'll bring into your life. Proverbs 25, 28 says it like this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Being able to say yes to every desire that you want, it actually leads to a life of insecurity. It leads to a life of danger and harm and destruction. Now, just so you know, we're going to be in Genesis 25 today, and we are going to look at a story of self-control, or maybe I should say a story of a lack of self-control from Genesis 25. But before I read the passage, let me just um, set the scene for you. This uh, chapter centers around Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is, is the child of promise to Abraham and Sarah, as, as many of you know the story. And if you're familiar with the story, God made a covenant with Abraham that he would be a father to many, that Abraham would, be, would have descendants as numerous as the, the stars in the sky. And so what we see in Genesis 25 is that Isaac now is ready to get married, and he does. He marries Rebekah. Believe it or not, they actually deal with the same issue that Abraham and Sarah dealt with, namely infertility. But God intervenes and allows Rebekah to conceive. She is pregnant now, but it's almost like she wishes she wasn't pregnant because of how difficult the pregnancy is. She actually describes this difficulty by saying that she feels like there's a war going on in the, in, in, in the womb. And so she asks God, why, why, why is this happening to me? And this is what God says to Rebecca in Genesis 25. We'll read from verse um, 23, and then we'll stop at verse 28. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let's just stop there for, for a second here. So there's this word from, from God telling Rebecca that she's having twins. I mean, you know, surprise, you're having twins. This is kind of like the, uh, you know, the ultrasound of, of the Old Testament. And, and, and not only that she's having twins, but each, each of these men, they will be the fathers of two separate nations and they will be in conflict with one another. Now, do you think your kids have problems fighting? <laughs> Rebecca's twins. Esau and Jacob, it's just at a different level. It's so bad that these guys are fighting even in the womb and it doesn't get better once they are out. When they are born, it actually gets worse. So Rebecca gives birth and Esau's first. He is red and hairy, just like we read and li literally clinging to his heel is his twin brother, Jacob. Apparently he wanted to be first. So they grow up and Esau grows to be this men's man and loves the woods, loves to hunt. 
And Isaac loves him and favors him for that. And Rebecca favors Jacob. And so to make matters even worse, the parents each pick a kid. You're my favorite. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're my favorite. And they grow up with this intense sibling rivalry. Now, all that is to set up this one story in Genesis 25. Let's just pick up the reading and uh, continue reading from verse 29. And we'll read all the way to verse 34. So just a few more verses here. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil soup and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And he, and he lived happily ever after. No, that's not what it says. What it says is, thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now in the ancient world, because we need to kind of uh, camp on this for, for a little bit, uh, the birthright for the oldest child would actually be a double portion. Now at this point, there are only two children, but, but I want you to do just a simple economics calculation for me. What do you think is more valuable? 66% of all that Isaac and Rebecca owned, and we're talking about land, animals, clothing, money, servants, or one bowl of soup. Now, which one is more valuable? It's pretty easy, right? And also it's pretty easy and inviting to be critical of Esau. Now, let me ask, have you ever eaten this kind of stew or soup before? Where you're paying for the rest of your life. For us, there's this saying, you know, the, the value of something, what something is worth is determined by what someone is willing to sacrifice and pay for it. And let me tell you, Esau paid for it. And many times we pay for it too. He paid with his birthright to his younger brother, functionally changing places with his younger brother. Now here's the, the first point we need to make today. Here's the first point we need to make today. Do not let a desire derail your calling and purpose. I'll say that again. Do not let a desire derail your calling and purpose. Now, just, just, yeah, do not let a desire, a fleeting desire, a temporal desire, a craving, an appetite, do not let it derail your calling and purpose. And you may push back and say, well, wasn't Esau's destiny predestined because God already prophesied that the older will serve the younger? We just read that in the Bible, right? Didn't God already choose and predestine Jacob to have the birthright? Let's not play the game of irresponsibility and passivity and blame it on the sovereign God of the universe who is outside of time and space and can see the beginning from the end. Also, let's not play with these kinds of speculations either. Well, if it wasn't for the stew, it probably would have been something else. He was always going to make that wrong decision. No, 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 let's not do that. See, we could definitely go on a rabbit trail here, but I choose to focus on this one thing today. For me and for you, and think about it for a moment, do you realize that God has a calling and a purpose for you in Christ Jesus? And in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, we are told this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before you were even born, God had traced, had traced the, the blueprint for your life. 
God has created you with gifts and abilities and passions and desires. God made you on purpose for a purpose so that you would walk in that purpose and calling, so that you would live for God's kingdom and God's glory. There is a calling and a purpose for you in Christ Jesus. And yet, what we do so often is we allow temporary desires, you know, for something that is sinful to derail that calling and purpose in Jesus. To not walk in the good works that, that Jesus prepared beforehand. To not live the life that God designed for us to live. A pastor said it like this, and I quote, don't make permanent decisions based on temporary emotions. That's a good one, isn't it? The decision that Esau made was permanent. And we know that because Jacob said the words, swear to me now. He wasn't going to let him get away with it. Essentially, Jacob is saying, this is permanent. This, this will stick. But, but, but notice what happens. As soon as the stew or the soup is gone, and I'm sure that he didn't regret, he didn't regret it in the moment. He didn't regret it as he was eating it. It's like, oh man, he was, he even gave me freshly baked bread. You know, I'm, I'm getting a side, an extra side here. I was so starving, you know, and, and, and this just hits the spot. And then he takes the final bite of, of the soup or the stew, I'm sure, and he's staring down at an empty bowl and it hits him like a ton of bricks. And from that day forth, the Bible says that he despised his birthright. Now notice, notice that he doesn't say he despised his brother, although that was kind of, a, kind of an ongoing thing between you know, Esau and Jacob. But the Bible is clear about the fact that he despised his birthright. And what that means is that he despised his own decision to sell his birthright. You know, another way of saying it is he lived for the rest of his life with regret. And we know this for a fact because we're going to read in Hebrews in just a little bit. And that kind of clarifies, that passage clarifies this deep kind of regret that Esau lived his entire life with, uh, you know, the rest of his life with. Now, in our lives, as soon as the one night stand is over, as soon as the, the bottle of alcohol is empty, as soon as the high wears off, as soon as the rage subsides and you've said all the words that you wanted to say, that you felt that you needed to say, I'm sure you get the picture here. As soon as the appetite, the desire, the craving to do something sinful is fulfilled, it hits us like a ton of bricks, doesn't it? Maybe even Adam and Eve, and I'm sure. Even Adam and Eve enjoy the fruit while they were eating it. And I'm sure he had a bitter taste after, you know, a bitter aftertaste of guilt and shame. And that's probably the world's biggest understatement. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are, are we going to let desires rule us? Are we going to give it, give in to, to, you know, whatever the heart wants? Here's what we do. And this is what self-control is. And this is our second point. Um, for, for this morning. Say no so that you can say a better yes. Say no so that you can say a better yes. I, I think there are two compelling reasons why we should live a life of self-control and allow the Holy Spirit to grow us in this way. And the first one is simply to, to think about the consequences of saying yes to sin and ultimately that it's not helpful, that it's destructive. destructive that it hurts us, that it hurts the people around us. It has that bitter aftertaste that we, you know, we do not want to live with regret for the rest of our life. And this is all on the negative side, right? This is all on the negative side. But, but then there's a positive side. Again, we are, we're, we're thinking of reasons why we should live a life of self-control. Now, 
Imagine if Esau had simply considered the value of his birthright. Imagine if he would have said no. Yes, I'm craving this stew. I want to have it really bad. It looks good, but I'm not going to fall for it no matter how I feel. I'm definitely not going to sell my birthright because it's too valuable. There's always a better yes that you can say. Did you know that? Not the yes to the craving, not the yes to the desire, but the better yes to God. The better yes to holding on to the birthright because you understand it's valuable and that it's important, much more important than the bowl of soup. Did you know that for everything that we say no to, God has a way, way, way better yes. Now, just so everyone is on the same page here, in the calling that we have on our life to follow Jesus, Jesus did not try and pull a bait and switch on us. Did you know that? He didn't try and say, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to have your sins forgiven? Say yes to me. Say yes to me. Say it now. Say it now. And, and, and oh, by the way, your life is mine now. It, it was always in the small print type of thing. You know, he did not, but Jesus did not do that. He did not do a bait and switch on us. And this is what Jesus said up front to people who were looking into following him in Matthew 16, 24. It's a well-known passage. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's as upfront as you can get. He's saying that if you want to follow me, you are going to have to say no to yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And by the way, a cross is not a comfortable object. A cross is a place of excruciating pain. It's an object of torture followed by certain death. This is a place where you die. Now, specifically, where you die to yourself, where your old sinful desires and cravings and wants and goals, they die. Whereas Paul, Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 5.24. And by the way, this is, the, this is the, the verse immediately following our list of the fruit of the Spirit. How interesting. So verse 22 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, such things, there's no law. Now, how interesting, it ends with self-control. And then verse 24 says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, what? Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How interesting. We don't just, friends, we don't just grow the fruit of the spirit automatically. We have to crucify the passions and the desires of the flesh. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What we, we are going to say no to our desires and cravings and sinful passions a lot, daily, multiple times a day. And we are going to say the better yes that God has called us to. And that is to grow in the fruit of the spirit and be filled with self-control. And we are going to choose the delayed gratification over the instant gratification that we usually go for. Now, here's an interesting thing about appetites. I would have never th thought that I would quote Jerry Seinfeld in, in, in one of my sermons, but, but here we go. Jerry Seinfeld has, a, has this you know, comedy bit about appetites. And he's like, and, and I quote, when I was a kid, my mom always told me, don't ruin your appetite. But here's the thing that I learned as an adult. You'll always get another appetite. I'll ruin as many as I want. Now, there's, there's definitely truth in what Seinfeld said. What we have to realize about our desires and appetites is that they are truly fleeting. They, they come and they go. There's always another desire just around the corner. 
So are you going to let those temporary cravings and temporary appetites rule your life? Or are we going to choose the eternal, the kingdom, honoring Jesus over the worldly and the fleeting desires? Listen, for the remainder of this sermon, I have three practices for us to, to help us in this. And, and, and the first one is, you ready for this? Start with your speech. Start with your speech. Friends, church, please listen to what I'm, I'm about to say. What, what we say, the words that we allow to come out of our mouth, what we post online is one of the, is one of the areas that we need self-control in the most. We were, um, we were hanging out with Adrian and Christina and their family last Sunday at Christina's parents' farm in Belleville. Really beautiful. <clears throat> but man, did we get annihilated by mosquitoes. There were so many mosquitoes and they would, they would bite you all over and it didn't even matter if you had clothes on or not. And I was thinking the amount of unproductive and destructive words that we allow to come out of our mouth is like the amount of the mosquitoes last Sunday. They are numerous. Also, these words annihilate us. They destroy us. They destroy our relationships, our families, and our society. Listen, we need to get a filter over our mouth. We don't, we don't, we don't need to say everything that we feel we should say. <laughs> when, I, when I read social media, what I want to say is, Christian, Christian, get a filter. Get a filter. You don't have to say everything you feel or or, or, or you think you should say. <laughs> your speech, what comes out of your mouth, Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles us, meaning what you eat or what you drink, but what comes out of it, because from the overflow of your heart, the, the mouth speaks. We read this in Matthew 12, 34. Speaking about speech and self-control, think about the brother of James, Jesus. And we, we, we went through James a little while back, verse by verse, so we should remember this. He says in James chapter three, verse two, and if anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he said? That if you get your speech right, you are probably a perfect man. That's why I say, start with your speech. Start with your speech. If out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, then what you say is actually a reflection of what is in your heart. A true reflection of your deepest thoughts and feelings. And if you learn to have a filter and may God help us with that, we need to learn to be silent. We need to learn to be silent. Now, here's the beautiful thing about silence. Here's a, here's a pro tip for you. If you just don't say anything, people will think that you are actually really smart. <laughs> I practice that sometimes. <laughs> but, but, but if you say the wrong thing, they'll think you are foolish. So if you wanna be smart, just use some self-control and don't say anything. Don't feel like you need to win that argument. Don't feel like you need to prove that point. Not only is silence a way that we use self-control in our speech, but it's also redirecting our speech from destructive purposes. Now, James goes on to say in James uh, 3 verse 6 that the tongue is like a wild fire. Now, think about how many fires, think about how many forest fires started over the, the unwise, unfiltered words that, that people say. Think about how many marriages fell apart because of some unwise, unfiltered, destructive words. But see, instead of using the destructive power of the tongue, what have we learned to use the, the building up power of the tongue? I mean, the Bible, you know, because the Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue, not just death, but life as well. 
So what if, what if you use your speech to build up that it might give grace to those who hear you and use your speech to speak words of truth, to edify and to build up people around you. And as you get a rein on your speech, as you get control on your speech, please listen careful to what I'm about to say. As you get control on your speech more and more, you are actually going to notice that you have self-control in other areas of your life. Practice number two, fight sexual immorality. Fight sexual immorality. Please listen to what, what I'm about to say. As we, as we follow Jesus and we crucify the old desires and the sinful cravings, there are two areas that self-control is absolutely vital in. And, and, and I look at the, as I look at the landscape of the church in general, our, our country and even Christianity as a whole, man, two main areas come to mind. And one is what people say and the other is sexuality. A world that lives by the slogan, if it feels good, then do it, naturally lends itself to sexually immoral practices. That's just, that's just what it is. And that's exactly what we see today uh, happening. And this is so interesting and important at the same time. So, so, so I wanna read to you from Hebrews 12. And the author of Hebrews is, believe it or not, talking about our Genesis 25 story today, our dear friend Esau. And even more specifically, talking about the implications of the following, of following the desires of your sinful heart and the selling of your birthright. But the way Hebrews talks about it, and this is, this is the interesting part, it likens it to sexual immorality. Has anyone read this passage and were you surprised by that? And, and, and this is what it says, Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's like the deepest kind of regret that you can live with for the rest of your life. Now, we, we have no reason to believe when you read Genesis 25 that Esau was a sexually immoral man. We know that he caved in to a desire and ate the stew. That's what we know. And yet, the reason why the author of Hebrews, I think, is using the situation with Esau is to describe sexual immorality in the church. And that's because both are physical desires that people have. And both are desires that are not inherently evil. Do you realize that? A desire for food and a sexual drive are both given by God. God created us human beings with both of those desires. And yet both of those desires, when you see them fulfilled in ways that God does not see fit, they lead to disaster. So God's design for sexuality is for fulfillment in a covenant relationship, a marriage covenant, you know, between a man and a woman and, and anything outside of that is considered sexual immorality. And if you think I'm being harsh about this, I, I just wanna remind you, Jesus' central teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on sexual immorality, and here's what, Jesus had to say, he didn't try to loosen kingdom ethics to be a little more inclusive. He didn't try to be, you know, not so offensive about blurring the lines. This is what he said in Matthew 18, nine. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. How about that? You cannot be more offensive than Jesus. That's his sexual ethic. 
And he said, if you think I'm only referring to the physical, right? And the outward acts of this stuff, <laughs> think again. In that same passage, he said that if we even look at someone and desire them sexually, we have committed adultery and lust in our heart. So what does this teach us about self-control in the sexual ethic that we find in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it means we have to get serious about this fight, fight sexual immorality. Now, I guarantee you that none of those stories that I started the sermon with, those prominent Christian leaders, these, these great scandals that took place, I guarantee you that none of them started off in ministry thinking they would end up there. I mean, that was not their goal destination. This is a, this is a longer period of time of not exercising self-control. And it, it accumulates over time, you know, uh, when, when you do not crucify the flesh, every decision, every time you log in and watch porn, this is every time you have those lustful thoughts and you keep them unchecked and uncrucified. They accumulate in and over a long period of time of not crucifying the flesh. It gives birth to big explosions where families break apart and destruction ensues and churches fall apart. That's how it happens. So what does it look like to get serious? Well, Download accountability software on your phone. Actually, the, the, the kind that you pay for, by the way, the, the good kind, and the kind that it really does its job. Delete certain apps if you need to. Do not be on your computer unless you are in public. Block contacts, block certain phone numbers. Break up from a toxic relationship. If you're you know, living with your girlfriend or boyfriend, get an, get an apartment of your own or get married yesterday. And if for some re weird reason these sound serious, it's because they are serious. But to be honest with you, they are actually a little less serious than chopping off your hand, aren't they? And by the way, the point Jesus was making is that you wouldn't chop off your hand. What he was saying is that we have to get serious in our fight. Let me ask you this. How are we going to reach a world as a church if we look exactly like the world? We have to not only preach the gospel, but live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1. If there's no evidence of the resurrection of Jesus in our life, meaning if we ain't any different than before we gave our life to Jesus, then, then that's a problem. So we have to not only preach the gospel, but live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that the world will not only hear the gospel, but see the reflection and glory of God in our lives. Practice number three. Try fasting, try fasting. Now I would say that fasting is a lost spiritual discipline for many Americans, Christians today. No wonder, just look at the way we live our lives. Look at how much we idolize food. I would say that self-control is so uncommon and therefore fasting is so uncommon. The Corinthian church had a massive problem. The American church is no different. Our God is our belly. That's just another way of saying that our God is our appetite, the desire, and the desires that we let rule us. So fasting is simply abstaining from food to say yes to God, to spend some time with God, to have as focused communing with God. See, fasting is the best spiritual discipline for targeting self-control, for growing in self-control. Because what you are actually doing, you're essentially reversing the decision of Esau. You are saying no to food and, some, and, and, and more specifically to those cravings and appetites. And by the way, Esau, in a sense, did nothing sinful following a God-given appetite for food. I mean, he had some good stew because he was hungry. Do you realize that? 
What he did was so foolish. What he did was, was very foolish, yes, which eventually turned into brokenness and destruction. And he viewed his birthright as something trivial, sure. So what fasting is, is, is saying no to a normal physical desire to gain mastery over your appetites. So that when you encounter a sinful desire, there's some control there. There's some practice there. There's some training there. There's some godly reflexes there. See the connection and correlation there? It's about the muscle that you're building in your training of fasting that when a sinful desire shows up, you may have power. You may have enkretia so that you may have power over those sinful desires. Again, and we cannot stress it, stress this enough. This is the work of the spirit in our life. He grows us in self-control. But our responsibility is that we have to open ourselves up. We surrender ourselves to his working in our life. And one way we do is by fasting from food to spend time with God so that the spirit may grow us in self-control. So here's what I would say. Pick a day this week, pick a, a day every week actually, and start by skipping a meal. Start there, just one meal. If you've never done it before, this is a good place to start. Start with picking a day and then skip a meal that day. And instead of eating, spend that time with God. Spend that time in prayer and in reading your Bible and, and keep at it for a while and watch how God will grow self-control in your life. But give it some time in a good try, meaning don't just do it for two weeks and say, man, oh, this doesn't work, forget it. Give it time. And don't do it so that you, and this is probably the, one of the most important you know, things about, about fasting. And don't do it so that you grow in self-control ultimately. That's not why you do it ultimately. Do it so you spend time with, with our Father first and foremost, and God will work self-control in you. In closing, this is what I want to end with. I said, I said of, of um, I said all of that to say this. This idea of self-control, it feels and it, it seems like it's, it, you know, it's a lot of talk about self-mastery and it almost sounds like it's totally our own doing. You know, you got to do this, you got to do this. And it sounds like a Jedi type thing where you learn mastery over yourself or you learn to control the force within you. No, nothing like that. But the reality really has to do with, and here we go, ready for this? The reality really has to do with Christ control. Because I look at a lot of probably even friends or people in the world that do not know Christ. They're not in Christ. And some of them are very disciplined. Some of them are very, very self-controlled, right? So, so what's the difference then? Some, some of them are even more self-controlled than a lot of us Christians. <laughs> Listen, it doesn't really have to do with being a stronger person internally. It has to do with more actually with giving more of your life over to Jesus Christ. Because for a Christian, right? Self-control for a Christian is actually Christ control. Um, look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. For the love of Christ, everyone say it, controls us. Now, I don't think many of us would have used the love of God in this context, that, that it controls us. But let me just read, let me, let me just continue to read. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that's really the good news of the gospel, which motivates us, which changes us and transforms us. 
It is not just that the love of God forgives us from our sin, but that the love of God controls us. It's like saying, look at God's amazing love for you on full display in the gospel, where Jesus, the son of God, died on the cross for your sins. Now, if that beautifully and sacrificially life-altering picture does not get a hold of you in your heart, to change your life completely, to control you, and, and to change your identity, eternity, purpose, and desires, then you probably do not get the gospel just yet. Also, think about the self-control that Jesus exercised when he was hanging on the cross, being ridiculed by one of the, one of the thieves, being ridiculed by, by the soldiers, suffering for the sins of a bunch of depraved and ungrateful sinners. Think about the self-control he exercised in not calling the angels to step in and get him to a place of comfort. And he experienced that and died for our sake. And he was raised back to life so that we could, we could be raised to a new life in him. So the question is, would we walk in that new life then? Where we say that Jesus is not just my savior, but he's my Lord. Can you freely say, I have given control of my life to you, Jesus. And as much as I know how, I will give control of my life every single day. Now, that right there means that his love controls me, that his love controls you. Because I know that he did it for me. And there's no other place I'd rather be than in his presence and in his calling and purpose for my life. And the good news of the gospel is that today, today, if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, you can give control of your life to Jesus. You can be Christ controlled today. You can pray and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. If that's, that's you, I'd encourage you to respond with a decision to get baptized as well. That's how we respond in receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.